you can't just take the general response and apply it to your content. You have to research your area and make sure you know what works in your particular area. So 10 as a number works across the board generally, and you could apply some general rules like that, but you really want to get into the mind of your audience and what works and what where do they hang out? Who do they respect? People have to do their own research. I think if you're lazy, it won't resonate as well, really. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers, or experts in influence, or people who have peeked behind the curtains into an amazing world of influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, this episode is about one thing, content. All courtesy of my next guest, who has to be one of the largest experts in digital influence out there, or more specifically, an expert in what makes a piece of content, whether that's a headline, a blog, a video, a social post, or an article, actually get traction. His name is Steve Rayson, and he heads up a company called BuzzSumo. Now, for those of you that haven't come across BuzzSumo before, you should. You just should. It's one of the primary tools that I use when figuring out how to help clients stand out and get cut through in their particular space. To put it in a nutshell, and the reason that I hunted Steve down and, and have been obsessed with him and his team's work for a long time, is that BuzzSumo analyzes millions of pieces of content every day across all major digital platforms in order to tell you, in order to spit out what key topics headlines, questions, and now that's important, what questions and trends are gaining the most traction, including who the key influencers are in your space. Now, to give you an example, just to geek out a little bit on the scope of the amount of data that gets crunched here, they recently analyzed 500 million Facebook posts, 100 million Facebook videos, and 100 million, again, articles some of the largest Facebook research studies to date. In order to figure out what posting times, types, styles, and structures got the most traction. Now that's one hell of a lot of data and one hell of a lot of insights, some of which we dive into into this conversation. Now anyone that knows me knows, as I have said, that I can nerd out hard on stuff like this. However, there is a reason. Listen to me justify myself. If you are going to try to stand out in your industry by creating compelling content, as I know many of you that I hear from are trying to do, then you know how much time, bandwidth, money, and resources it can take. And the biggest mistake I see people making is going out there blind, trying to imagine what people want to hear from you, what they will find engaging, or worse still, just using your own preferences and tastes as a guide for want of anything better. And one of the biggest questions I get asked about digital influence and storytelling is, is this one. What should I post about? Where and when? And the answer I always give is, I don't know, but you should. As content creators, as storytellers on any platform, in the world of earning and keeping attention, it is your job, it is our job to find out. What are your audience interested in? What are they searching for? Where are they searching for it? How do they prefer to consume their content? What's the key to getting them to share so you can hopefully amplify your reach or maybe even go viral? Answer those questions first and you will be miles ahead of the game as an industry influencer, I promise you. So that is why I stalked Steve from the, literally from the other side of the planet to get him on the show. That's also what we're going to be geeking out over today using the insane amounts of data he and his team have access to in order to answer some pretty big content questions, including what's the most compelling structure for a blog headline? Are there any specific words that reliably get the most clicks? Can we predict that? And if so, what are they? What are the absolute key things we need to know when creating compelling online video content? Are there hacks to using newer platforms like Facebook Live, Instagram Stories, now there's Instagram TV? And, you know, a key for anyone starting out, just ignore the rest and go straight to that part. 
Plus, what's the one thing that separates content that actually gets engagement from content that we've all made that just sits there and gathers dust? If content is king, then consider this episode a guidebook from the king's chief of strategy. So, grab a pen, a paper, a napkin, your dog, I don't mind, whatever or whoever will sit still long enough for you to get these tools written down. So you can go out there tomorrow and develop a content strategy that is clear, streamlined, informed, and most importantly, effective. Please enjoy my conversation with Steve Rayson. Welcome to the podcast, Steve Rayson. Hi, really good to be here. I'm just going to quickly kick off the way that I would that I would usually kick off, which is to to ask you whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert, and to give anyone a first time listener a, a bit of a background as that. I find there's often a myth or a story about the fact that you can't be influential either on stage or in a the digital content universe unless I'm an extrovert. I can't get my ideas out there unless I'm an extrovert. So you do some of the best content that I know of. What would you consider yourself to be? Um, I think I started life as an introvert, but I suppose I have to be considered an extrovert now, given that I do do the odd talks and I do webinars. So um, I really love doing webinars because you can reach a big audience, but it's almost like one to one. So you're not you don't see the huge crowd there. You might have a thousand people on the webinar, but you're just chatting into the screen. But um, so I think I started as an introvert, but over time I've become more extrovert. So I actually now actually enjoy doing webinars and I enjoy doing conferences. So I'm happy to stand on a stage. So I'm probably now be called an extrovert, I think. I really don't like small chat at parties and things. I'm not great at that. So I'm really happy to talk to people about content marketing at a party, something in detail. Um, but, you know, social chat, I find difficult. I think I'm not naturally an extrovert. So, but in an area where I know my stuff, I'm happy to be an extrovert. Well, hopefully this is going to be the next, the next however long of our conversation. We'll keep it, we'll keep it in your sweet spot. So just as a, a brief summary as to why I, why I asked you on to the podcast and why I was so keen to talk to you. From my perspective, um, what BuzzSumo does as a company and the type of intel that you collate, I think is just, I think is just amazing. And how I found it was often I would get asked by people, you know, what should I, what should I call something? What should I call a presentation? What should I call my book? What should I call this article? Um, what kind of language should I use? How should I pitch it? How should I position it? How can, how can I package it? And the one thing that I would say over and over again was you need to go where the eyes and ears are of the people you're trying to reach. And you need to look at what they're engaging with, look at the language that they're using, look at the questions that they're asking. And I kept saying that same thing over and over again in full knowledge that that was pretty tricky to do. Like it, it took a lot of work to do that. And then someone sent me BuzzSumo. And suddenly there's, there's this tool here that not only can you now check what's the most frequently asked question in my in my realm or in my vertical you can check what's you know what posts get the most engagement who has the most following you can look at the language that they use all in one place so that's why I love what it is that you guys do and you've also taken it one step further in the intel you've managed to collate and translate for everybody but let's just start there what's your hopefully more succinct version of what BuzzSumo does yeah, I mean, BuzzSumo started as a fairly basic idea is trying to understand it really designed for content marketers. We saw content marketing was taking off. It's harder to get ads to reach and all those things. So you need some uh, content marketing strategy. And so it was really trying to see how could we help them. And it seemed to us the obvious thing was what sort of content resonates with your audience. So you need to understand your audience. You're writing for an audience. It's like what content resonates with your audience? What type of content formats do they like? What type of headlines do they like? And as you say, I think the thing about questions is really important. What questions are they asking? What's keeping them awake at night? Because you can write the most fantastic post, but if it's not interesting to your audience, then um, it's a bit of a waste of time, really. So, And we saw a lot of content wasted. A lot of people were spending a lot of time on good content, but it wasn't really addressing the concerns of their audience or it wasn't reaching their audience. Um, so the idea was quite a simple one. So it started with, let's just see what's being shared on social media. So you type in a topic, we'll show you the most shared articles on Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. Um, and then we've gradually extended it to say, okay, but what's getting the most links as well? What sort of content's evergreen? So we've developed an evergreen algorithm because 
ideally you want your content to hang around. There's some content which is great for awareness and it spikes in a few days and then disappears again. But evergreen content just gives and gives. So we then created an evergreen algorithm. And that's one of my favorite features of the tool, just to say in my space, what sort of content is evergreen? And you, after a while, you begin to see the sorts of content that's evergreen. So, you know, what is blockchain? Is a type of evergreen post, you know. And so stats, evergreen, statistics. just a quick de definition of evergreen for us. Evergreen is content that consistently gets shares and links and interest from the reader and traffic over time. So, you know, maybe a post you published two years ago, but it consistently gets high traffic on your Google Analytics consistently gets referred to on social media, consistently gets linked. So um, if you can, you want to create some evergreen content. You won't create all evergreen content, but it just gives and gives really, as opposed to an article you work hard on, it spikes, it disappears. That's a typical pattern. When content's published, it gets social media traction for a few days and it tends to then die generally. Um, evergreen content is quite a different profile. It tends to be quite consistent. And so we find content that's research-based, content that has statistics in it, people then refer back to it. It's sort of reference content. People will refer back to it. Or like a good What is Blockchain article, people refer back to it or link to it from an article. Um, so we do that content and then we started thinking about the best content really is content that answers your audience's questions. So ideally, we want to know what questions they're asking. Now you, you can do that in lots of ways. You can ask your sales team what questions customers are asking. You can talk to your support desk. Um, you can just talk to customers directly. But um, what we did was decided we just crawled forums. So we just crawled, literally we crawled about 200,000 forums at the moment, including the whole of Quora and Reddit, et cetera. And so you type in a topic, um, whatever that happens to be, e-learning or something, and then we'll just show you the questions that people are asking about that topic, and we group them into subtopics. And it just gives you a sense of you know what questions people are asking. So it's not the full picture, but it's quite a useful picture. So if you type in weddings, you see all the different questions. So you know wedding dresses, engagements, you know destination honeymoons. You see all the sorts of um, questions people ask, and then you can think about being the best answer to some of those questions. You won't answer all them, but you want to really be the best answer. Google picks up really the best answer to questions. So it's not good enough being the 10th best answer. Um, if you can only be the 10th best answer, you probably don't want to answer that question. You want to find a more niche question where you can be the best or the second best answer, because that's what will drive the traffic, really. So what is blockchain? There's already a couple of really big blockbuster articles. You wouldn't now write a what is blockchain article because you're not going to get past those posts, really, unless you're the Financial Times or something. So you would choose a sub one, like how is blockchain being applied to my particular area or whatever it happens to be. So you pick a slightly more niche topic. So again, artificial intelligence, loads of articles, but maybe artificial intelligence and the impact on jobs or whatever it happens to be. Um, so you have to pick a good question, I think. But for us, the, the best content answers customer questions or your audience's questions. So we then added those features as well. And then we added a, a little Facebook feature and things and a trending content feature. So over the years, we've added more features. But the fundamental is still about what content resonates with your audience. It's really sort of audience research in a way, and it helps you come up with ideas. It, we also have a bit of influencers. Once you find good content is, how, why did that why did that get amplified? Why did that go viral, for example? And so we'll show you who linked to it, who shared it, and you should start to get a sense of who the influencers are in terms of who were the big people who started to share that particular post. And so it just helps you understand a little bit as to how that content got amplified. So that's, in essence, what we're about. I'm not sure it's any shorter than yours, but anyway, that's, that's what we're about. It, 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 was, it was fairly comprehensive, but it was great. The, I think it's easy to underestimate some of the things that, that, that you said there. I think that knowing the questions that your target audience are asking is probably the key to putting together content. Now, you know, digital content is one thing. Books are another thing. Presentations are another thing. Um, there's a variety of different ways of packaging up content in order to raise your influence. But knowing the questions, in fact, I had... Um, I had a colleague of mine ring me. He was just about to get on stage in front of a whole heap of engineers. And and the person who had spoken before him had had used a lot of content that was similar to him. And he rang me and he was like, what do I, what do, I do? And I said, just get on stage and ask them what, what are their main questions around this topic and then speak to those. And I guarantee you, your presentation will be the most engaging of the day. So knowing the questions that they're asking is the most pivotal, pivotal thing. And the fact that you figured out, and I want to ask you how many data points you, you know, how many data points you exactly measure, but you figured out how to 
I just type in one topic and as you said, the best thing to do is pick a macro topic, a, a big chunky piece and then niche it down into your particular area. But you can find those those questions and the exact language that people are using as opposed to the language you think they should be using, which is usually German. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's really interesting to know, understand language because um, I was searching on the, the question analyzer that we have looking for topics around health. And really interesting, one of the most common phrases is, is this normal? <laughs> Which I wouldn't have thought about, but obviously people are going on forums saying, is this normal? It's, um, I think in, yeah. in relation to motherhood, I've asked that question of Google, I don't know how many times. <laughs> so then you, say you can then write you know, headlines or, or teasers, et cetera, which, which play to the same words. So it's understanding what words are your audience using really. So rather than a more formal language, yeah, is this normal comes up again and again and again in the topic of health. So. Do you have any um, any great examples of, of either companies or, or Basumo as a company? Because again, your content, besides what you equip other people to be able to do, the content that you guys produce is world class. Any examples of how people have used this type these type of insights to really cut through? Yeah, there are a lot. I mean, I would talk a little bit about us because we started as a small business. We formed the company in March 2014, so we've not been around as long as some people think we have. We did have a, a beta version of the tool app prior to that. But um, so again, in terms of content, which I think, how do we make a mark in our space? You know, we're a small new company. There were just three of us employed in the company at the time. Um, and so we again thought about what questions people in content marketing are asking. And they were asking questions about, you know, what headlines are effective, you know, what content works, et cetera. So we focused in on those, but we just thought for us, it was how do we cut through? The problem is there are eight or nine million blog posts published every day. It's, there's so much content. How do you cut through? And our view on content marketing is you really want to be almost the most authoritative in your space because people take notice of that. So we were then thinking about how, how do we be authoritative? And for us, it was about we need to have research data information, which is extensive, which other people don't have. So it took us quite a lot of time. And I spent personally, I did a lot of the research. It's like, OK, we'll take 100 million Facebook videos, as you know, and we'll say, right, let's what can we learn from these? And the piece of research would take two or three months and then we would publish it as a blog post. And we were quite lucky as well. I think a few influencers picked up on it, but um, but the content was then seen as quite authoritative in our space. And within literally a, a year or two, we were seen as quite authoritative in the space when we publish our big research reports now. And so that was our sort of strategy was thinking, all right, what do our audience want? They want to know what headlines were, but they don't want someone writing seven tips to write a better headline because it's just your opinion. And that's great, but that's just your opinion as to what works. You might have a little bit of evidence. So when we did the, the headlines post, again, we took 100 million headlines. We looked at how many shares they got, what were the top two word and three word phrases that were getting engagement. Um, and that was really powerful because people then said, okay, it, it's data driven. When we looked at Facebook and what was best times to post, what types of content, we took a billion Facebook posts analyze those billion posts and so it was statistically quite significant in terms of what we were doing and what's interesting is when you do that original research the sorts of things that come up are things that you never think at the beginning so when we did the headlines we you know we analyzed 100 million headlines and thought what you know what phrases what three word phrases are going to be really powerful you know so we're thinking you know um make you cry or you know um what happened next all those sorts of things might come up but interesting the most powerful phrase by some margin was will make you and when it came top it came top with like twice the level of engagement all the others i'm thinking we've done something wrong in the data we need to go back and relook at the data until you start looking then at the headlines and what will make you does is it connects the content to the impact on the reader so these tips will make you more productive this video will make you feel happy or cry etc so actually and analyze the data, we then got insights that we wouldn't have otherwise got. So somebody just writing seven tips for headlines isn't going to find that sort of stuff. So for us, it was a strategy about how do you answer the questions, but you need to answer the questions in an authoritative manner. Uh, I, we couldn't just write an, another, there are so many posts about headlines. We couldn't just write another post about, about headlines. It had to have something authoritative about it. And to me, that's about content. The best content is is unique it's deep it's it's original and i listened to a great interview with lionel barber the editor of the financial times uh, a month or so ago and they're saying how do you stand out and he said we just do deep original content and that's expensive and hard to do but i think 
in some ways to cut through and to get more evergreen content it's got to be just you know it's it's deep it's unique it's original and there's so much content which people just write a one hour in my view you can't write a great blog post in one hour you might do something on a topic and an opinion that could work well but for most of us it's we've got to do a lot of research there's a lot of work to produce a good piece of content it depends on the content obviously some contents for awareness education some's for fun uh, some's more educational etc and some's more leading towards your conversion and for people to consider your company so there are lots of different types of content but i still think you need to be something that's original that really adds value to the reader when they read it and there's so much fluff content out there now everyone says well we have to write an article about ai we have to write an article about machine learning and it's just it, if it doesn't add anything new and original, it's not really adding a lot of value to the reader. In fact, it's probably wasting their time. So that's where we came from is we want to answer questions, but we want to answer them in a, in a deep authoritative manner to build our reputation. Because I'm a great believer that it's about authority in, in this world when there's so much content, there's so much false information and fake news. It's interesting, we're now seeing sites like the Financial Times, the New York Times, their social shares are going up, other people's are going down dramatically. Generally, social shares is going down a lot, but those big authoritative sites are doing well. And I think we're in an age where authority is gonna matter a lot more now when there's just so much noise out there. So yeah, so that's an example of, of, of how we did it, which is trying to answer questions, but in an authoritative manner. And I think there are lots of other sites that, that do that as well. So, you know, sites like Moz on SEO, they're well known, but they actually do good research around what works. It's authoritative content that you would trust uh, about that particular topic, really. I'm just looking. At, I'm looking at one of. I had it in front of me. One of the um, one of the main ones that you did, which was we analysed 100 million headlines. Here's what we learned, which was the research piece that you did. I'm just looking at 8,000 Facebook shares, 5,000 LinkedIn shares. I mean, you're obviously 1,000 buffer schedules. You know, you obviously hit hit the nail on the head with the, with the analytics that you had. So let's just, let's, let's dive into, let's dive into one of them for a second. Let's pick on that 100 million headlines piece of research that you did. Because I think that that's a good chunky piece for anybody looking to dive into, into content, because the headline really dictates whether we read it or whether we don't. It's, it's the only indicator we have of how interesting something is going to be it's worrying but yeah if you don't get the headline right people may just not come to your content it's you could spend hours on it days on it and some and people would literally just bypass it so you had already mentioned that the most popular phrase the most engaging phrase that you found by a country mile was will make you something will make you something else and it was more than twice the number of engagements than the second most popular headline which was this is why um what else did you learn what else did you learn about about headlines, their length, um, the type of language? Yeah, we, we learned a number of things, really. We learned that the, there's a lot of um, people saying that the headlines should be short, etc. What we found actually was longer headlines did quite better. We got quite a nice bell curve distribution. Um, so with people getting you know, 12 to sort of 18 words in a headline were doing particularly well, not the short six word ones or something. So that was interesting. And again, we just simply plotted 100 million headlines. We plotted it on a chart and we got a, almost a perfect bell curve, which is unusual in, in stats. We often get skewed distributions. Um, so the headlines were longer than we were expecting. And I think some of the best headlines were also a bit more explanatory. Um, there's a, been a tendency for clickbait headlines to tease the reader to say, you know, he asked for a divorce. This is what happened next. Um, to that, you know, people have a natural curiosity gap so, so that they, they they try to click through to that. Um, but those headlines are really very disrespectful of the reader in a sense that you know, it's not telling you anything really. Um, so I think sometimes headlines that explain a bit more could be helpful. People want to click through to that. We find for our own headlines that we need to emphasize the authority. So saying we analyze 100 million headlines is to give it the authority. So rather than just writing saying headlines, you need to write best headlines, you need to do X or whatever. Uh, we just thought on our post, we need to put the numbers of the amount of research we're doing in there to try and get the, the seriousness of this across really. Um, the other really interesting thing was we got big differences between the headlines that resonate on Facebook and the headlines that resonate on LinkedIn. Probably as you would expect, some are more um, B2C and some are more B2B. And you do get different types of headlines. People love to be entertained and, and amazed and stuff. Um, and what we found is, um, for, particularly for the consumer headlines, we found that there are a number of different elements to a viral headline which you could put in. So, so what's the topic? Is it an invoke topic? Is it zombies or blockchain or whatever it happens to be there, Donald Trump, et cetera? But 
the overall thing of the headline is that the headline almost has to have promise. You're promising something in, in the headline, really. And uh, BuzzFeed do have done this very well in the past where, you know, they, they have a number of structural elements of what type of post is it? So it, it list posts are really clear. It's 11 things or whatever. What type of content am I going to see? This is 11 videos, 11 quotes, um, etc. So it's very clear um, what you're going to get there. So there's there are structures to headlines that work. And um, I would say there are four or five viral forms. If you really want to go wild in the sort of consumer space, they work quite well. But in B2B, we found slightly different structures work in B2B. We generally find in B2B, people want to do their jobs better. So people are looking for content that helps them do their jobs better. So we find on sites like LinkedIn, content such as how to do things, practical tips, those things do quite well. Other things that do well on LinkedIn, if you put the word successful in your headline, it's almost bound to make you more successful. People want to be successful. And so we were finding headlines with success and successful in were doing quite well, whether that's in career terms. Also, career development articles do well on a site like LinkedIn because a lot of people are looking for career advice, et cetera. But people also, we find on B2B, love industry trends. So anything around industry trends and things, people like that sort of content research around their industry. So, But I think it all comes back to people in B2B want to do their job better. They want to understand their industry, what's happening. They want to know what tips to be successful. They like case studies. I think case studies are underused. Um, I think we've seen case studies do quite well, but not many people use them that well. But I think people want to see examples of what's worked in their space. So, So we found quite big differences in the types of headlines that work as well. Um, but overall, I think it is about there, there's some sort of promise to the headline. It has to catch people's attention and there'll be some promise within it. Um, but again, it, you, the, the key, I would say, is you have to research your area because each area is slightly different. Each audience is different. So the audience looking for kitchen design is looking for a slightly different headline than the audience looking for you know, career advice, et cetera. So I would say people have to do your own research and understand your audience more. But um, but I think there are some fundamentals of good headlines. So there are some good elements in it, like what's the promise, what's the topic, what can people expect, you know, what are the um, the promise, and also an emotional word in the headline as well. So it's not just 12 images, but 12 surprising images, etc. There's normally some emotional element. I was gonna, I was actually gonna ask you about this, because I think the, the biggest thing that I got out of reading that piece of research was chunking it down to three things. So the headline had to have a sense of emotion. Yeah voyeurism and tribal belonging and and those are two things now sense of emotion i can understand you know it needs to yeah. have as you said some yeah. kind of charismatic language in there you know as opposed yeah, yeah. to five trends in your industry five trends to help yeah. you dominate your industry you know, that's charismatic yeah. language that's going to get way more yeah. engagement and i think that one's fairly obvious but voyeurism and tribal belonging i had never yeah. heard of that before can you can you give me an example yeah, of those? Tri- tribalism, tribalism, I think, is one of the most powerful features. Um, we Firstly, we see it, obviously, in politics. Um, and so what we see is that if there's an article, there was an article that went out at the presidential election saying, why I'm voting Trump. Or there may be one saying, you know, five presidents, and five living presidents, none of them support Trump. Um, the tribes get behind those headlines in pol- political terms. So they, they get behind. So And so, you know, and politicians have worked out the more strident you are for your cause, the more your supporters supported, etc. So that's led to a, a slight worry, I think, in terms of politics, because the more vehement, you know, the more aggressive your headline, the more emotional your headline on your side, the more your tribe tend to support it. And we've seen that happen a lot on, on Facebook and, and Twitter. So that's a political tribalism, and, and they will literally get millions of shares. But People, I think, understand tribes. I mean, it's a long time since Seth Godin talked about tribes, but I think of tribalism in a different way. I mean, the BuzzFeed and people would do, you know, the, here are 10 things that only a teacher understands. Um, and that's actually appealing to a tribe. It's getting teachers to share it with other teachers and then to support it, for example. Um, and so we see it in the, in the context of sports teams as well. But increasingly, we're seeing it in the context of the, the things only teachers understand. Or I, I like some of them with some, you know, you know why bald men are the, the most sexy in the world, et cetera, those sort of things like, yeah, that gets shared quite well. So it's, um, and that, that one did particularly well, that post, et cetera. So um, 
but it's leveraging that tribe, etc. And I, I like the way that people tease first and second born children. So some of the headlines that get the most millions of interactions are, you know, science says that first born children are the most intelligent. Um, you know, science shows that, you know, second born children are all going to be criminals. Um, and these are real headlines that people have used, but they, they go down very well and they're shared with people to tease partners and, and those sorts of things. So, um, so there are different levels uh, of tribalism really, but, um, but increasingly we are seeing headlines that appeal to that tribe, try and get that tribe engaged and to share the content. So that could be a professional group, you know, it could be sports fans or whatever it happens to be. So there are different ways of, of tribalism. And I think on, on voyeurism, people just want to know what's going on. So we were surprised that, you know, the, the headlines around, you know, this is going viral on Facebook and freaking people out or whatever. People quite like to see what's trending, what's um, what is engaging other people, and then it tends to get a, a viral life of its own. So there's definitely an element of sort of uh, voyeurism within that. But there's so many different types of of, of content that that do well. But once you analyse them, you sort of understand it. So, but these are all different strategies than than people can use really. I mean, science says, which I mentioned, that's really that does incredibly well. People like science says so, and so people often take a research study and then they they write it up and they might write it up in a more sensational way but but when it says science says or you know latest research says um those sorts of headlines do really well the the evening standard in the uk their best headline ever or best piece of content ever in terms of engagement was drinking three glasses of champagne a day uh, helps fight alzheimer's disease and it's like okay science says and then at the end science says or science report shows this um you know that got millions of engagement so it's, again there's something about that it was a surprising research finding. So it's again something which intrigues people. So this is surprising. It's probably not true. It's probably buried deep in a report somewhere. But the, the headline was interesting. So the science says stuff works well as well in, in a headline. So science research shows. So you, the more you analyze headlines and you, you use Buzzsumo or other tools to look at headlines, you start to see certain patterns. So you could then say, okay, how could we apply this in our particular sector, uh, in our content? How might this work? So is there a surprising finding about our industry? that might be shared, et cetera? Is there a tribe in our industry that we could leverage? The other thing is that controversial content does incredibly well. Um, and so you can think about um, ways to use that. So um, Jeff Bullis, who lives not far from you, he's over in Sydney in, in Australia, he wrote a post saying, you know, why Facebook is a waste of time for marketers. Now, he didn't believe that necessarily, uh, but it caused lots of controversy um, and it got a lot of intention, attention, for example. So you can be controversial in your sense. If you're in an industry that sells learning management systems, you could say, you know, why the learning management system is dead and dying or whatever it happens to be. So you have to be careful with controversy, but it doesn't have to be like political controversy, just something that, that really is provoking your audience to get engagement, uh, really. So there are lots of different strategies you can use with your, your headlines and your content. Random question that I have a theory about, mm. but I'm, uh, I'm not going to tell you my theory until you answer it. <laughs> with numbers, when you, you said lists still perform pretty well. And by the way, you could combine a list with something tribal, with something voyeuristic. So, you know, the champagne example that you gave, it's it's voyeurism, but it's, you know, science says, but it's also something I'm going to share within my tribe of people I drink champagne with. So you can combine all of these tools for super effective content. Odd or even numbers when it comes to lists? Uh, the best performing numbers um, fairly consistently is like number 10. So we always find 10 is, is a strong performing number. So it's that's an even number. I don't think it really matters on odd or even people say about odd numbers. So people talk about odd numbers. Uh, the data tends to show that 10 always performs quite well um, across numbers. What I would say about numbers in B2B, smaller numbers perform better than larger numbers. So in B2C, often you'll see 17, 23, et cetera, nine. Um, in B2B, we found quite conclusively that if you're sharing headlines on LinkedIn, three tips to be successful, you know, five things you need to know about blockchain are better than 10 things you need to know about blockchain. Um, I think people, I think it's as simple as people in B2B have got less time and everything else, and it's more focused. Um, so that was sort of interesting to find B2B, it's much smaller numbers, people are, that perform better. Um, but overall, if you were going for safety, and I hate to say this, I hate to say about list posts, because we see so many list posts, but list posts do work quite well. They work both in shares and in links, which is unusual. Most content uh, either gets shares or links, um, does, doesn't get both. But research content, um, list content tends to do well in both. 
but 10 still seems to be the most powerful number as a general rule. If you were stuck for a number, you could go for 10. I think on LinkedIn, you could go for five. Um, but list posts do perform quite well. But as you say, it's not just about the list posts. You can combine other essential elements of a headline that make it so you can say, yeah, it's it's 11 yeah, images because people like images, et cetera, um, you know, whatever that will make you more productive. So then the overall headline has a promise. There are a number of elements or, you know, according to science, these 11 tips make you more productive. So you, you add more into that headline um, and it gives it a stronger impact. But so odd or even, I think most people would say odd, but I would say the evidence tends to suggest that 10 still performs best, unfortunately. Well, I think the evidence just outvoted me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about video. Yeah. So you analyze 100 million Facebook yeah. videos, so 100 million Facebook videos, and you identified some key facts that make Facebook videos either engaging or not engaging. Now, one, some of the things that you found was that the average video post reached 12, roughly about 12% of the total page audience, whereas status updates only 45 4.5%. Yeah, that wasn't our research. Actually. That was somebody else's research that we quoted in terms of what the reach was. But yeah, the the people who've done that research specifically around reach found that video has higher, higher organic reach than, than other forms of content. Yeah. And that's, that's and we know that Facebook have been promoting it. So mm. Facebook have been pushing that as well. So yeah. Facebook's algorithms really pushing, really yeah. pushing video right yeah. now. What's your, we'll go into some of the findings in a minute, but just as an overarching, what's your main advice for anyone who's looking to use more video in their content? based on the findings? Yeah, I mean, I think it's video's still gonna be relevant for your audience, et cetera. But um, there are a couple of things. I mean, shorter videos tend to perform better as, as a whole. I mean, Facebook now using its algorithm, one of its algorithm factors is completion rates. So how many people watch the complete video or the percentage of your video is one of the factors on how well they raise it or lower it in the newsfeed. Um, so you don't necessarily want a 12 minute video if completion rate is gonna be just two minutes and people are exiting out. Um, but we found that videos really of 60 to 90 seconds seem to be optimum for the levels of engagement that they've got. After that, it dropped away a bit. And then after about four or five minutes, engagement rates were much the same. Interestingly, really short videos didn't get the same levels of engagement. So we what we did on analysis it seemed to be that 60 to 90 seconds was a sort of an optimum period for for a video so i think it's thinking about video length don't put really long videos and you may have done this i've done this i've tried to produce videos just to explain bits of buzzsumo i'm always trying to keep them down to a minute and it's really hard i do it think oh done it that must be a minute and it's like three minutes it's like then you just edit and edit um and I think you have to edit. Conciseness matters. It's good for audiences generally. I mean, it's like that old Pascal quote that, you know, I would have written you a, a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. It's it's hard to edit and take time to, to make things more punchy. So, yeah, I would definitely think about uh, short videos. I also think the other interesting thing that people didn't pick up from our study was some of the best videos were the videos that had virtually no introduction to them. Um, I like, like people like Red Bull. Some of their best videos just said, want to see something weird? Here's the video. And they, they just want to see something weird. That was it. Then there was the video. Some people write paragraphs of text. And it's just, I think you just want people in the video. You don't want to begin them read lots of text necessarily. And so by intro text, do you mean, you don't mean edited into the video, you mean actually? No, no, the, the intro text on the Facebook post. On the Facebook the video post. Itself. Yeah, yeah. I'm always um, amazed at the at the popularity of r review videos. I was at the, I was on holiday recently and I was at the gym and there was a lady running while watching a video on her iPhone and the video she was watching was somebody reviewing handbags. But that was fascinating enough. But what was even more fascinating to me is that she was watching it. It was obviously not in her native language. And so it was subtitled. And so she was reading the subtitles as she ran. And f for kids, there are, I know my daughter watches some of them. There are kids that are reviewing their toys or reviewing a new book, getting millions and millions of hits. Have you seen much of a, a rise of this review trend? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some, some of the really big YouTube stars recently were just reviewing video games. Well, look at so PewDiePie. Yeah, yeah, they, they were just watching him play a video game. So it's um, so that's interesting. But fashion's another big topic. I mean, fashion does does very well. Um, although I think, I think a lot of that's migrating to to Instagram rather than to Facebook at the moment. But um, it's sort of interesting how it's really interesting how the different platforms interplay. And I say this to people as well. We, we talk a lot about Facebook, but. Um, you know, there depends on your audience. So, you know, Reddit is a great platform, but it's mainly it's 70% male, uh, mainly under 35, I think about 60% under 25. So if you've run to reach a young male audience, 
actually read it is is quite a good audience. Um, Pinterest is really good. Pinterest is after Facebook the second biggest driver of traffic, and it's closing that gap with um, uh, with Facebook quite considerably. Um, but Pinterest, you know, they say about 80% of the pins are made by women, and according to Pew Research, something like 92% of, of all pins that are placed. So 80% of people on the platform are women, but some 92% of pins made are made by women. So again, that's a different audience profile you know, to Reddit, and it's a different audience profile to Twitter, which is more 50-50. Um, so Instagram, you know, really large audience of, of younger women on there, for example. So again, you know, not all social platforms are the same. And I think a mistake people often make is they write the piece of content, then they write the same post and just post it to different all the different platforms. It's like, uh, I know there are lots of scheduling tools which have encouraged that behavior, but they really have to be quite different. You're, you're writing to quite a different audience, really. And you may not need to push it on all the platforms. It may be that Pinterest really works for you or um, Reddit works for you, et cetera, so, or Instagram works. Um, but a lot of people just literally just spray the content across all of them but with the same messages. And I don't think that necessarily does as well because we, we can see there are quite different audiences. So they'll have interests in different things. So, you know, on Reddit, if you want to discuss net neutrality or robots or Elon Musk does really well with that younger male audience on, on Reddit, for example, probably wouldn't do so well on, on Pinterest. But if you want to write about kitchen design, then Pinterest is a great place to be or DIY tips. Um, and that's the thing about headlines that work. We found that um, um, one of the interesting things about headlines was some headlines worked on Facebook, didn't work on other platforms and vice versa. Um, so there was one about um, uh, on a budget. So on a budget was a phrase. We looked at the top and worst performing headlines on Facebook. And one of the, the worst phrases on Facebook was on a budget. Um, and I think that's probably just because of context. People weren't going to Facebook to look for tips on a budget. Whereas on Pinterest, on a budget was one of the best performing headline phrases. And I think that's because we were looking at household tips, DIY tips, bathroom tips on a budget. Um, and so I think, again, it's about context. What are people going to those platforms? And Facebook people may be doing more um, entertainment and those sorts of things on Facebook platform, whereas Pinterest had quite a different context. So again, this is what I was worrying. I was saying in my articles, you can't just take the general response and apply it to your content. You have to research your area and make sure you know what works in your particular area. So, you know, we'll make you a good general one, but you know, what really resonates with your audience, 10 as a number works across the board generally, but, and you could apply some general rules like that, but you really want to get into the mind of your audience and what works and what, where do they hang out? I mean, where do they hang out? Who do they respect, um, et cetera. So, everything comes down to me and my main sort of tip is you have to understand your audience. I mean, I don't know your audience necessarily in terms of who you're writing for, but I can tell you the sorts of things you need to look for in order to be able to understand what resonates with them. Um, but people have to do their own research. I think if you're lazy, it won't resonate as well, really. How the next question that I get, I seem to get asked a lot at the moment is how perfect does video need to be? Can you literally just do, you know, you and an iPhone or if you're in the the HR department of a large corporate quickly just do a behind the scenes a voyeuristic post around this is what's going on in, in, in HR today or do you need the production the lighting perfect words it depends on the, the video and what's it for but actually I think people are very forgiving of low fidelity video these days they're used to it they're used to iPhone video I would say you know if you are shooting something if you're going to do a talking head then you still need to have reasonably good lighting etc a good microphone all those sorts of things and you would caption it so there's still work to be done on the video um, but I think increasingly people like you know and are happy with low fidelity video and in some ways it can come across as more authentic i think some of the slicker big consultancy videos just they don't gel with people people are not going to share some of those really big high production value videos from a big consultancy or accountancy firm um, whereas they might share something from you know an insider tip about what's happening what's really happening behind the scenes or something so i think I think the great thing is it's it's sort of never been easier to create content. You can create video content that people will engage with. You know, it could be a, a Skype chat or whatever it happens to be, but you can create that quite quickly um, in a way you couldn't have done before. You would have to have lighting engineers, sound engineers. The technology is better, of course, but you can use iPhone and other video. And I think people like it. People like the behind the scenes that, as you said before, about revealing behind the curtain. People often like the behind the scenes stuff. Some some. <clears throat> 
the stuff I watch at conferences is not necessarily just the big speeches, but people saying, yeah, I met so-and-so and this was what was being talked about at the conference. And those sorts of views are much more interesting to me sometimes than the formal stuff. And I think videos can be a bit too, too glitzy. I think uh, this sort of generation, the millennium generation that's come through, are much more sensitive and aware, and I think can judge content much better. Um, so before those big flash videos, I, I don't think they necessarily work as well as they used to. Um, but people still like to see amazing and surprising stuff. If you go to the Red Bull site, Facebook page, their videos, they show some fantastic, highly produced content, but they're generally showing quite amazing things of you know, playing races or whatever it happens to be. So people still like to be amazed and surprised, really. Actually, one of the most one of the most compelling pieces of content that I've that I've seen recently, I was doing some research for an insurance company of of what would be compelling from a messaging point of view for for their audiences, and I found this video and it was by an insurance agent in the USA, and she was she wasn't extroverted at all. She was very quiet. She was probably in her fifties, and it was just her in a white background, and it was called the best and the worst day of my career. And it was about she had insured this young this young man with a young family and he had passed away in a plane crash. And it was three minutes of her just talking about what had happened, what she had done as a response, how she had supported his family. And you could see she was genuine. It was genuinely mm. the, the worst day of her career and also the impact that she got to have on a, on a grieving family mm. made it one of the most fulfilling mm. days of her career. But that took something... That would usually a behind the scenes moment that you would usually you yeah. know life insurance. It's not that interesting, yeah. yeah. And just propelled it into you know I would have if I if I lived in the states I would have had my life insurance with her in a minute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's authentic, it's genuine, but it's also it's a story. I mean, the other thing we haven't talked about is stories. The stories are really powerful. People like stories, and she's really taken a story there and elevated it because it's authentic, it's genuine, has emotion, uh, but it's fundamentally a story. Um, and so, yeah, stories work really well. So again, it's we also talk about finding stories in your content as well. What story are you telling? What makes a compelling story when it comes to digital content? Yeah, there are well, there's so many different types uh, of story, really. I think people do find things as surprising emotional stories. Um, we focus a lot just on data, but even data, you can tell so many different types of stories with data. So what are the trends? Trends tend to be a story. Um, who's leading? What's the league table is a story? Is somebody falling behind in a league table, for example? Um, some statistics that are surprising is a story. So um, it's always trying to find the, the story that appeals to your audience. But I think there are certain uh, sort of story arcs or narratives that are, are quite popular, you know, good against bad, those sorts of things. So there are sort of common ones. But I think in our context, when we even look at data, we think of at least probably five main story types we tell with data, say trends, lead tables, surprising data, counterintuitive data, for example, and sort of correlation causation data in lots of ways, you know, so do changing laws change, uh, do changing gun laws change, uh, gun deaths or things, what, the, what does the data show? Um, so we can tell stories in, in different ways, but we're always trying to think even when we write something which is fairly statistical basis, what's the story behind this? Is is is, is it more important to use video, less important, et cetera? But, but personal and human stories, that's where I think case studies are underutilized a lot as well. I think personal stories are great and, and newspapers do this incredibly effectively trying to take the context of a whole sort of story by telling it from the point of view of one individual uh, and what happened to that particular individual. So, um, you know, it's something we find sort of harder to do in a way that the day stuff that we write, but I think those are really compelling where people take it down to an individual story, but that shows what's happening. In the, and, and you explain a context, but by seeing it through the individual really. So yeah, we can all learn from journalists there. They're very good at taking that stuff down to the individual and, and and people just do connect on a human level. I think people really like human stories and stories with emotion, but obviously overcoming obstacles, success are common are common ones. Um, but there are stories a bit like the, the, the young woman who got elected in New York recently that now been so many stories about her and how she's overcome various things to get to, to be elected to the position she's in. Those stories are really great. Um, and we know all the evidence is that actually it's a bit like certain types of statistical data, but people remember stories better than other things. So people actually remember the story. So it's to be memorable again, people just remember stories quite well. So if you can keep it as a relatively short story, it's more memorable and people will remember it. So 
yeah, so I would say in your content is we always try to think about what's what's the story in our data, what's the story in our content, what are we trying to get across, and that works quite well. And if you can bring it up to a human level about a particular case study of how somebody did this, so we would use ourselves as examples often. It's like, okay, this is what we did. We started, we were three people in 2014. We now have 500,000 uh, subscribers to BuzzSumo. Um, you know, how do we get from here to there? That's a little story, and people are interested. And so we wrote on our own site. It's not really relevant for our audience about content marketing tips or advice but I wrote a little post about you know how did we go from zero to two and a half million dollars revenue and obviously we're still not big now we're at sort of six or so million dollars revenue but the but it was quite interesting just to write stories so this is what we did how we got from here to here and that was also one of our good performing posts but it appealed interestingly to a slightly different audience people who are interested in startup stories as opposed to our normal audience of content marketers so it sort of widened the range a little bit um, but it was also about making us more human, about mistakes we made, things we got right, things we got wrong. Um, it made us a bit more human to our audience of saying, look, this is what we're doing. Also, it's something about our values. We're trying to be a bit more transparent about what we're doing, why we're doing it. So telling our little story as a startup was was really useful. I think it connected us with the audience in a, in a slightly different way. Uh, at least I, I think it did. I think going back to the story thing for a second, you know, we've used stories as a teaching tool for for millennia you know story is the ultimate teaching tool story is is a motive we remember anything that's attached to an emotion generally so i think that that from a recall perspective is what makes story so powerful but i wanted to just focus in on what you said there about it widened your reach the one of the things that you you guys did was you ranked popular video topics by engagement and we'll we'll put links in the show notes to all of these this research and i think food was number one and, and i can't remember yeah. i can't remember what was yeah, number two fashion was number two fashion yeah. was number two would you yeah. suggest that people took th that info let's just say that i work in i'm a mortgage broker took that info and went right okay my industry isn't anything to do with food but how do i segue my industry with a food related topic so that I can get, is that too much trying to piggyback on something? Yeah, I think that that may be too, that particular example, I think may be too much, I think, in terms of trying to get people interested in insurance through food. I mean, there may be good stories about insurance stories around people who insured food and it you know, went wrong or whatever it happened to be. But, um, um, but I think they could learn about what sort of things engage. They could say, well, actually, maybe... You know, what, what our data shows is actually the lowest performing video was finance videos on Facebook. That was the lowest performing. So I would take away from that. I probably wouldn't therefore try and do videos actually on Facebook, but I might do them on LinkedIn where I've got a slightly more receptive audience. So I would learn from that that Facebook's paper not our platform, but maybe LinkedIn is our platform. Or actually, you know, there may be for startups and insurance for their businesses, I might look at Reddit or other things. So um, I would look at the right platforms for that. But I wouldn't try and segue too much food in, although I think you can take some of the core concepts behind stuff. So, you know, shorter videos, surprising data, whatever happens to be, you can take some of the concepts and apply them to your space. Uh, you can take the concept of human stories. What human stories do we have? What could we tell uh, in our space? So I think you take the, the concepts, but you wouldn't necessarily try and cram recipes or food into to your your content that's going to be that's going to be tough i think in the insurance space um but you can find that people do find interesting ways to engage their their particular audience so um yeah so i think there's that i mean i think as a general rule i'd say the other thing about content is to be generous with it and i think this is a big thing i read a book once called love is a killer app and it's still one of my favorite books it's a really thin little book but it basically just says give away your knowledge give away your knowledge um, um and basically calmly it'll come back people have you know, give you stuff in return. So when we publish content, we don't gate it. And we have, there are strong views about this, but we don't gate content. Um, so our view is, you know, if you gate it, you're really trying to strike a transactional deal, which is, you know, we'll let you read the content if you give us your email so we can spam you or whatever. Um, and say, so we'll put quite like that, but it's more or less that sort of transactional where we're saying, just read our stuff, it's free. And if you want to sign up to the newsletter, that's great. And you can choose to do that. Um, but I think give away your knowledge and give away your time. And that comes back. People appreciate that. And I think it's one of the biggest tips I've learned. And I think you can apply it to content, which is just give away knowledge. You've got some really great uh, stuff. Don't keep it to yourself. Share the knowledge out there. Because as long as you're continually learning, and this is the thing, you don't need to worry about it. People say, Steve, you're mad giving away the stuff. You should keep it, make it proprietary, charge people money. And it's like, no, no, we just give it away because we're learning all the time so actually we'll be learning new stuff so it doesn't matter that next month we'll learn something else and, and learn something else so but i think just 
give away knowledge and be helpful to people and give them your time. And I think it comes back. And I, I see it in really popular marketers, people like Rand Fishkin, I think is a great example, uh, now running Spark Toro. It's, he gives away so much of his time, so much information and knowledge. Um, and then the love comes back to him, I think people then appreciate that and return it. So I think in your content, just give away the knowledge you have, don't try to hold too much as proprietary. I want to take this this concept of of a video just to to the next level, which is live video. I think it's a quote from one of your research reports that Facebook's head of video announced that twenty percent of all Facebook videos are broadcast live, and the daily watch time for live videos has quadrupled quadrupled in the past year, which, as you said, is partly due to the algorithms that Facebook are, are putting in place to prioritize live video over over anything else. What's the smartest way for people to start utilizing Facebook Live or live video in general? Yeah, I mean, so I have a couple of people I know who do this very well. So Ian Anson Gray, for example, runs us and um, Julia Bramble, they run a little Facebook uh, show now every um, Monday afternoon, a little Facebook Live. Um, and I think they've got it down to they've targeted their audience quite well. They've, they've set it at a time which is useful to their audience, but they've they have scheduled it so it is there's this regular session so i think it's two o'clock every monday they have a regular session i mean obviously it does well because facebook promote it when your friends are live they, they push it live so you can see it it's got a higher sort of profile um you know i'm not I've not done lots of Facebook Live myself, but from seeing what Ian and Julia have done, that's worked quite well of having a, a regular, it's almost like a TV program. It's a regular schedule. It's live. You can catch up, of course, but people go in and ask questions and stuff. And uh, they're good at name checking people and saying, oh, John's on and ask questions, et cetera. So they use, I suppose, features of live, which is people can ask questions and things like that, which is just a broadcast video afterwards they couldn't do. Uh, so they use those features quite well of making it engaging so they do facebook live questions where people can ask about things so they do a little presentation but people can ask and engage and it's, it's a lot of it's about engagement and that seems to have worked quite well for them um say so i don't personally I, I i was on their facebook live recently and i've been on other facebook lives but um i don't run many of my own so it's difficult for me to comment in, in detail but that seems to have worked very well for them and established their brand. But I think a lot of it was about using the features of live. So that the fact that people could ask questions and engage, because otherwise, if you're just going to broadcast, it could just be a broadcast video anyway, really. So I think they used that that element of live and spontaneity. And other way I've seen it used well, I mean, uh, Mike Stelzner at um, uh, Social Media Examiner uses it incredibly well. And that he broke stories where there were some new stories and stuff. He actually broke Facebook Live video and he ran a quick Facebook Live and it did incredibly well, but it was a breaking news. So he used it almost in the context of a journalist would use it. It was like, okay, this is the latest stuff and it was Facebook Live and suddenly somebody shared it and it popped up on my video feed, et cetera. Um, but that was using live in the, in the context of really being live. This is a sort of breaking story, really. It's like we've just learned. Um, and so, yeah, he did incredibly well. And then as a consequence, he actually got invited onto the BBC and other people to to answer questions on stuff because it went so viral, that particular video, really. So, um, um, yeah, that did incredibly well. So I think trying to use it where it, it makes sense to use it. So it's not just a broadcast video, really. So, so basically the, the old school rules of, of what made TV engaging still apply. You know, the, the, the live news feed, the, the behind the curtains, the regular time so I know when to tune in. Yeah, I think you're going to use live. That that seems to make sense. It's either breaking or it's something that, that's scheduled there in terms of like a regular slot. So um, and these things may change again when Facebook changes the algorithm, et cetera. Who knows? But um, but yeah, but Facebook Live, we've known because they promote it and they encourage it. Um, it tells you when your friends are live, for example, they get more engagement typically than than the standard ones. And I think you also said that that unlike the other video, the optimum length for a Facebook Live is about 20 minutes. So not 60 to 90 seconds. We're, we're yeah. back to kind of deep form, authoritative content there. Yeah, because if you're going to engage people and ask questions and explain the topic, etc., it can't be the 60 to 90 seconds. So yeah, a video that you're just going to publish out and get people to engage with 60 to 90 seconds, probably ideal length for that. But if it's Facebook Live, then as you say, we tended to find that actually, you know, up until sort of, you know, um, three, four, five minutes, you got more engagement at that length than if it was too short. Um, because we gave people time to come in to comment and Facebook Live videos generally attract high numbers of comments, etc. So, um, 
yes, yeah, so Facebook Live, the length is completely different. And then the problem with that is then when you try and publish it as a normal video afterwards, if you just want people to watch it, it's going to be on the long side. So um, yes, it's again, it's it's short video if it's going to be not live and it's slightly longer, four or five minutes if it's going to be, or at least four or five minutes and sometimes they go on 20 minutes and longer if you really get the engaged audience. But you need the time to engage your audience really. So it's not going to be a super short really, unless potentially it's just a breaking news story. It's it's a topic that I'm learning about now and I know I know very little about and I had a friend who did a Facebook live probably a couple of days ago and he was saying to me he said you know I've got 7000 fans and I promoted it the best way that I knew how and even then I only got seven people watching and I'm pretty sure one of those was me and two of those were were the, the tech people I had in the background and I honestly I honestly didn't know what to suggest or what even to ask him what what would you have suggested or what questions would you have asked him yeah i don't know i mean there is an issue of when's a good time for your audience and stuff as well because it's live you're expecting to get their attention um i would also say you know those seven people could be good people if they're potential customers etc so it's reaching seven people can still be quite good really so um it depends what you're trying to achieve with the video as well i think it's a bit like content which we haven't discussed but creating content is one thing but it's only half the job the other half of the job is promotion you have to promote your content you can't expect people to find it even if you're well known because people are so busy there's so much content um you're competing for attention which is really really hard and so i would say to people you need to spend at least the same amount of time promoting your content as you know creating it so that means you know i mean when we did the headlines post it did well but it didn't do well by accident we primed journalists in advance we'd sent journalists copies of the research before we said well, it's embargoed we're going to release it in a typical standard sort of way we interviewed various influencers who included their views on that the results in the content because we knew they would then share it we lined up facebook ads to promote it uh, that particular piece of content so we had a whole strategy to promote each piece of content and i think every piece of content needs a promotion strategy and the same will be true of your facebook live videos you know you're going to need to promote it do people know it's coming are people waiting for it ready for it if no one's ready and waiting for you whether it's a facebook live video or piece of content that's not good i think you've not prepared the ground you know people need to know this is coming um and then they're waiting for it they want to see it or they want to read that content so promotion is everything really and we haven't got time to go through it but there are lots of different ways of promoting content the way you use influencers to promote content the way you can use sort of paid ads for example the way you use journalists journalists i think are still underrated really powerful we had one person on the new york times who was interested in headlines and we knew this and we contacted him he tweeted about the headlines piece but because his audience were interested in headlines i think that one tweet got 600 retweets so that's really powerful but it wasn't because it was him necessarily, but his audience was interested in the topic that we were pushing. Um, and so that all takes quite a lot of preparation. So you can't just write the content, click publish as people do, and then it's just a waste of time. You just it's you just wasted your time. You create this content, no one's going to read it. You've got to have a promotion strategy to get people to engage with that content and where you're going to promote it. You may be just answering some of those questions on Quora that are relevant to the article that you've written and pushing it that way. I say it could be ads, et cetera. It could be different types of influencers. You use your own email list for sure. What really drives our content is our own email list. We have an email list of people who want to access to our research. When we mail them, the, con the traffic really spikes. So you need a strategy to promote your content. And so that would apply equally to your your facebook live video or a piece of content you've got to promote what you're doing um and it not be a surprise to people that you've published something so so i'm going to finish i want to finish with just with with one question which is there's so many different areas we could have taken this i wanted to, to focus more on video and on headlines just because i think it's some of the questions that come up the most frequently but if there's one thing if there's if i could put in front of you everybody that you wanted to reach everybody that buzzsumo wanted to influence with all the data and analytics that you have what's the one thing you would want them to know about creating engaging quality content um yeah i think i mean the, i think the simple things is, is to produce something which adds value to your reader i mean it's fairly simple adds something which really adds value to your reader when they read it so not the seven ways to improve your landing page so what, what's really going to add value and to me that's original content it's deep content um often it's based on your own research but it doesn't have to be your own research you could look at other people's research and, and um, pull all that together for example analyze a range of reports but i think it's to me it's something which is it's got to be original and adds value to your audience you understand what your audience wants and you're really adding value so when they read it 
they say actually that was that was useful that was valuable to me really and i think sometimes if people genuinely looked at some of their content you know you've you got to ask that question is it, is it really adding value to my audience really that's what they should be focusing on i think that's the prime objective well steve thank you so much Fresh off the plane from Peru, and I know you're heading you're, you're heading back on another plane <laughs> yeah, now. So I'm thank head, you. For, I'm heading off to France now. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you for making the time. It's been an, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to following whatever Buzzsumo does next. Great. Okay. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now. For those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.